When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Jennifer Me? She is also known as the Hiccup Girl. So first I'll go through the background for Jennifer Me. I'll move to the timeline of the crime, then offer my analysis. Jennifer Me was born in St. Petersburg, Florida on July 28, 1991. Growing up, she had mental health, physical health, and educational challenges. At age 15, she developed a case of the hiccups that was pervasive and out of her control. She said that sometimes she would hiccup 50 times in one minute. She started attracting the attention of the media. She was on several television shows. They referred to her as Hiccup Girl. I guess the regular person who came up with the names was on vacation. Hey, we got this guest coming on the show. She's a girl and she has the hiccups. We need a catchy name for her. I don't know. How about Hiccup Girl? If the same people who named Hiccup Girl were working when the Golden State Killer was arrested, he would have been called Murder Guy. Jennifer tried all the traditional cures for hiccups, but none were successful. Eventually, the hiccups went away after she was prescribed a drug typically used to treat Tourette's Syndrome. With that chapter of her life over, one would think that she would be out of the spotlight, but in June of 2007, she ran away from home. She eventually became romantically interested in a man named Lamont Newton. Jennifer actively sold drugs and arranged robberies. She thought of herself as a gangster. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. On October 23, 2010, in St. Petersburg, Florida, Jennifer arranged for a 22-year-old man named Shannon Griffin to meet her. There are different stories about why they were meeting. The evidence supports the idea that Griffin believed that he and Jennifer were going to go on a date and that cannabis would be involved. Jennifer denies the date part. She said she was simply there to connect him with cannabis. After they met, Jennifer led Griffin to the back of a vacant house that was for sale. She told him to walk behind the house with her to meet her friends who had the cannabis that he would be purchasing. Jennifer's friends were Lamont Newton and a man named Laron Rayford. One of these men was in the possession of a revolver. It was chambered in 38 caliber and held six cartridges. There are different stories about what happened next, but it appears as though as Jennifer was walking away, Newton and Rayford attempted to rob Griffin for the $50 he had on him, the money he was going to use to buy the cannabis. Griffin resisted this robbery, and there was a physical struggle. Newton and Rayford were losing, like Griffin had gained the upper hand. He was physically stronger than either of his two attackers. At this point, either Newton or Rayford produced the revolver 
and fired all six shots. Three of the rounds struck Griffin in the chest, one went through his shoulder and exited out the back, and two of the rounds missed. Griffin was killed. Newton and Rayford fled after taking Griffin's wallet, leaving the revolver on the ground next to Griffin's body. Newton, Rayford, and Jennifer went back to their residence and then went on the run. At some point, bleach was used to get blood out of the clothing worn by either Newton, Rayford, or both of those men. The individuals knew that they were in serious trouble. Jennifer was aware of the law in Florida, the felony murder rule, which meant that she could be charged with the same crime as her two conspirators, murder in the first degree. All three conspirators were arrested the next day. Initially, only the two men were suspects, but Jennifer started talking to the police and implicated herself right away. A few things became clear in the investigation. Jennifer set up Griffin. During a call with her mother from jail, Jennifer explained that she was charged with first-degree murder. Her mother asked how that happened. Jennifer responded, because I set everything up, it all went wrong. Not only did Jennifer set Griffin up, she knew that robbery was the objective. She also knew that Newton and Rayford had access to a firearm. She had seen the gun before. Jennifer did not know the result would be homicide. So again, she believed they were going to rob him. She didn't know they were going to kill him. Her fingerprint was found on Griffin's driver's license. So not only was she active during the murder and the robbery, she was involved after the fact as well. Jennifer, Newton, and Rayford all lived in the same house with one resident. Her name was Jennifer Sharon. Sharon said that on the night of the shooting, all of them were going to go see a movie, the latest installment of the Paranormal Activity series. Before they had a chance to go to the movie, Jennifer, Newton, and Rayford left the residence saying they needed to go get some money. The next thing Sharon knew, Jennifer came home talking about how she heard gunshots. Rayford came home next saying that Newton had been shot. Then Newton arrived. He was not shot. He indicated that Griffin had been shot. Rayford and Newton appeared to have been in a physical struggle. They were both out of breath. In 2013, Jennifer, Newton, and Rayford were convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now moving to my analysis. There are conflicting stories about what happened from the perpetrators, None of the conspirators told the same story. For example, if we look at Jennifer's first story, the one that she initially gave the police, she said she brought Griffin back to where Newton and Rayford were, and some type of jealousy situation evolved, like a love triangle. This is what led to the murder. Jennifer ran away from the scene. She heard shots as she was running away. Newton said that the plan was to sell Griffin drugs. There was never a plan to commit robbery. Newton told Rayford to give Griffin some drugs. Griffin was upset because, again, of some type of love triangle. So this part is similar to what we see with Jennifer's story. Griffin attacked Rayford, and Rayford shot Griffin. Newton ran away. He was right next to Jennifer. He heard shots when he was running away. So with Newton's story, it was really all Rayford's fault. Jennifer was innocent. Newton was innocent, and Rayford was the one who had this whole love triangle situation going on and acted out. Later, we see Jennifer changes her story, but her new story didn't help her case either. Now she was saying she did see the revolver come out. She said Newton, 
grabbed Griffin by the neck and choked him as Rayford pointed the revolver at Griffin's head. She did not run away at the first indication of the robbery. Rather, she walked away. She was only to the corner, just a few feet away, when she heard the first gunshot. Then she started running. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, Hi, True True Crime Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while. First in Amy's book of poetry, Doe. And then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week, we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker, along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts, or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. The two major issues with this case that come up frequently are centered around the fairness of the felony murder rule and Jennifer's sentence. Her actual guilt is not in question no matter what story she wants to commit to or which story people believe, she did set up Griffin and Griffin was murdered. The felony murder rule is a little bit different from one jurisdiction to the next, but generally it says that if conspirators are in the commission of a dangerous felony and someone dies, all the conspirators are guilty of murder. The killing does not have to be intentional, but the killing cannot only be remotely connected to the actions. Right, So there has to be a way to bridge the actions to the homicide in a way that's fairly straightforward. It can't be roundabout or fanciful or, again, remote. The idea is that it would be somewhat foreseeable. The criminals would have to know that their actions could reasonably cause death. It was not a remote possibility. It's something that they were doing that was dangerous, and death would be the outcome in at least a fair portion of the cases. The idea behind felony murder is that certain crimes cannot be tolerated. The law needs to hold people accountable, even beyond their actual intent, in order to eradicate these offenses. There's a lot of debate about the felony murder rule. It has been banned in a few countries like the United Kingdom and Canada. However, in the United States, it is in effect in 46 states, including Florida. In theory, one of the benefits of the felony murder rule is evident in this case. We have three different offenders and three different stories about what happened. Under the felony murder rule, it doesn't matter who pulled the trigger. It kind of makes things easy to figure out. We know that one of them did, and that's all we need for a conviction. So it just kind of flattens all these stories and all these people accusing each other and reduces it to 
murder for everybody. Regardless of whether the felony murder rule is a good idea or not, many people have taken issue with Jennifer's sentence. They might say, okay, she was clearly involved. What she did was serious, but does she really need to spend the rest of her life in prison? Here are my thoughts on this. There are a number of mitigating factors to consider in this case in terms of sentencing, but many of them are tainted with uncertainty. I'll go through a few of them here. Eventually, Jennifer was diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome, so that appeared to be the explanation for the hiccups. This syndrome is not associated with criminal activity, though, right? So this doesn't really seem to help her as much as it might appear to initially. Her attorney tried to say it did explain the hiccups as well as her poor judgment, but in reality, the syndrome doesn't have a connection with poor judgment. So no matter how we look at this mitigating factor, it doesn't really seem to help her, as I indicated. Jennifer had short-lived fame, the whole thing with the hiccups. This type of fame can be quite dangerous. The person may want to recapture it, and then they'll work really hard to impress people. But Jennifer would be unable to duplicate the source of her fame. She couldn't get it back, so she starts acting out. She would say that she took the path of the devil. Negative behavior can be effective in attracting attention. So without a route to get behavior for a positive or neutral reason, negative behavior becomes an option that people consider. Jennifer was allegedly a victim of a sexual assault when she was young, although this has been disputed. It was reported that Jennifer had a low IQ. I'm not aware of the actual score. So that term is pretty subjective, low IQ. What number are we talking about? Is it something that could really affect her ability to understand what was going on with that robbery? In looking at her in interviews, it does appear as though she is intelligent enough to know not to orchestrate a robbery and intelligent enough to know that a robbery could lead to death. Jennifer has expressed some remorse for her behavior, but some have argued it's really not enough. Something else to consider with her sentence, it appears as though she was really fighting for an acquittal during the trial. There was talk of a plea bargain. Her attorney said that the prosecutors may have entertained a minimum sentence of 25 years. Even assuming that she served all 25 years, she would have been released at around age 44. In Florida, inmates have to serve at least 85% of their sentence, which would have shaved off almost four years in that case of 25 years for Jennifer, which puts her around 40 years old. Her attorney made it clear that Jennifer was aware of the evidence against her and aware of the possible negative outcomes, like life in prison. She chose to not pursue the route with a plea deal. She wanted to go to trial. It would appear that she took a gamble and lost. With all this in mind, what do I think would have been fair in this case? I don't think the felony murder rule really makes a lot of sense. I understand the idea behind it, but I don't like the concept where a person can do something wrong and then be held accountable for something they didn't actually do that came about in some way because of what they did wrong, even if it's fairly loosely connected. Again, it's not supposed to be remotely connected, but even in a connection where it was somewhat foreseeable, this seems a bit harsh. In the first moments when Jennifer was walking away from the robbery, she wasn't a murderer. Then either Newton or Rayford pulled the trigger, and now Jennifer was a killer. What did Jennifer do to cause the trigger man's decision? Did she control him 
telepathically. She was definitely responsible for the robbery, but murder was not her plan, and she did not commit murder. I think in a case like this, 20 years in prison would have been reasonable. That's a heavy penalty. Some people who are convicted of second-degree murder don't even serve 20 years. What lessons can we learn in this case? The victim in this case, Shannon Griffin, was murdered for $50. I think this case is really about the dangers of when a lack of empathy meets impulsivity. Jennifer now has a lifetime to contemplate a bad decision that only took her a minute to finalize. So I guess the idea here is that if people don't want to think things through, if they don't want to invest a little bit of time to make an important decision, the law may give them a lot of time to think about it, but in a position where they can't go back and change anything. So it's just an unfortunate situation where people act impulsively and then have their whole life to regret the consequences of those actions. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.